I don't want to write the great Canadian novel. I want to write a novel that educates, that informs, that liberates. My goal is to teach at this point, I guess. Because, follow me on this. So I, what was that, 30 years studying Buddhism uh, and Nietzsche. Uh, and I've come to realize it's because they were speaking about trauma. And trauma is what I was needing to heal. Only to, I don't know, a few years ago, finally get involved with others, right? Healed enough that, you know, I didn't flip out if someone said something wrong. Like I actually had a, an incident where I was pissed for months because um, a corner store tried to shortchange me for the second or third time. <laughs> it was just probably stupidity. I doubt it was malicious. But of course, in my mind, I saw it as 100% malicious, you know? So fast forward, right, a couple years of healing. I did uh, a few years of healing inflammation uh, before uh, I realized that I had to manage the trauma to get over that last little hurdle. Like a hurdle. I reached a plateau because, I mean, even what I'm dealing with right now, I have a, a disease, an auto-inflammatory disease. It's a skin disease, so it causes major issues. I right now... I'm dealing with a major issue. And uh, it used to bother me. Be like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Right? Because you feel like you're being tormented by an invisible um, demon, as it were. Right? In bête noire in French. And Jung uh, used it as well. Uh, bête being something that uh, harasses you. Bête uh, is usually used as a, a term for a fly, a bug. Right, but uh, in the term bête noire, that's um, like a black bug, a black um, specter, I guess would be a great uh, word. Specter, something that hangs over you and bothers you. Right, so this uh, specter of uh, being just, you know, bothered. For me recently, uh, just to give an example of where this fails. So usually I'd be like, oh my God, I'm so hard done by. What if, you know, I'm a martyr. Um, there's no uh, cause to this effect. Which eventually, as I've made jokes, becomes an affect. Right? Because you automatically, instead of looking for a source, you, you freak out. So as an example, uh, a few weeks ago, I actually had a couple of flares. And I couldn't figure out why, because overall I was eating pretty good. Um, like what I had done is I had eliminated sugar from my diet, processed sugar, uh, by weaning out, I guess weaning, right? Uh, but using honey and maple syrup, right? And over the last couple of years, I've realized that I can't have a certain amount of sugar. It's not a big deal. And so I'd been adding some things back into my diet, but when you start adding in some processed food, see, this is why we, we, we uh, tell people to stay off of processed food altogether when you're trying to heal a major disease, be it mood disorder, physical, you name it, gestalt, right? You can't separate the, the psyche from the body and the meta. So, of course, my old self and like many sick people who have this affect where... 
Um, you have a flare and you just go, oh my God, I'm doing everything right. What was me? How hard done by am I? So just as an example, because I no longer have that affect, I'm still looking for cause and effect, keeping an open mind, right? The idea that Charles Sanders Pierce uh, mentioned, the first rule of logic is doubt, right? To remain doubtful, especially of your own convictions. That's, that's where we find the greatest uh, forecasters or those who have a great sense of doubt, uh, particularly in the face of their own certainty or their own theories, right? Their own hypotheses. So uh, there would have been a time where I just would have said, oh, poor me, look how sad I am, but I didn't give up. I didn't give up. And so I kept paying attention, and then I finally found a connection. The reason why we just blanket ask, uh, ask people to swear off processed food, because what it was is I bought some red vines for the wife when she was going back to work. It's this uh, treat out of the U.S. It's like uh, Twizzlers here in Canada, these red vines. Um, so she could, you know, pack a little, a little something treat in her lunch, right? And uh, so I'd, I'd had a few just because they're really tasty and different, right? Novelty. And that uh, was before the first flare. Then we found these gummies that were made from natural ingredients, um, right? Natural flavors, uh, Canadian made, all this jazz. Everything seemed fine, but... I also uh, had a flare after that as well. So I do my research, just didn't give it up, didn't give up and say, oh, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm a martyr, I'm being oppressed. Or I didn't just automatically assume sugar, plain and simple, because I've learned over the last, gosh, years and years and years, I've learned that the truth is, it's more complicated, right? It's much, much simpler to give people these blanket statements, stay off of processed food and avoid all sugar, all sugar or all processed food or all processed sugar. But in the end, it's unbelievable even to me what it ended up being, is they've changed some sort of law. I'm not an expert on this. But they used to list these, these colorings in our food, right? They were like numbers, like red, 40A or, you know, these sorts of things, if you remember. But they don't do that anymore. Or it could be a combination, right? Because Canada now, we, we get a mix of products uh, from around the world. So uh, I've noticed with our coconut milk, which is uh, coming directly from Thailand, um, there's two types. One, they put a sticker on uh, to match what, you know, the Canadian government wants you to say. Uh, and then the can, which is much higher end, obviously, uh, has all of the information on uh, the label. They reprinted a whole new label for the Canadian market, which I understand why it's ridiculous. I personally would be okay with uh, just sticking a little info sheet uh, to the products. It's, I think, I've said this before, I think it's absolutely ridiculous. The only reason why they push this bilingualism on product packaging here in Canada is because that's the only thing they can point to, for the most part, that shows a national commitment to bilingualism in Canada. I've mentioned this before, I'm among the very few who were truly bilingual, meaning I've lived in French and I've lived in English, I've lived with people uh, in Quebec, I've lived with people in Northern Ontario, I've spoken a number of different dialects, 
even from other countries. Uh, one of my best buddies I worked with, with year, for years worked together uh, in collaboration. Uh, we had a, a new, me new media business, and he was from the Côte d'Ivoire. Uh, the Ivory Coast in Africa, by the way, the French, their French is beautiful, even nicer than many uh, French nowadays. You have to be, same as what I noticed when I was young, you had to be uh, very highly educated in Quebec to have a really beautiful French. But we won't go into this in, in too great a depth. Um, the reason why I'm mentioning it is this, this lip service being paid to identity and culture and uh, meaning. Right? So if Canada rests on its laurels of being a bilingual country, and the only thing that we can point to is bilingual packaging, why do we see that as a win and not as a fail? Because I spoke to a, a number, but I'll just one example, this young man from Quebec, and we were talking about this because um, he, I'm not exaggerating, he said my French was better than his, uh, and certainly my English was. So we were discussing this idea of French, and, and I've given this example before that there are exchange programs where, say, uh, a Canadian from Alberta can go uh, and stay with a French family in Quebec, right, practice their French, immerse yourself in the culture. I've mentioned this. Culture is the grandfather of consciousness because culture is what informs language and the meaning to words, to sounds, um, to these, uh, these, these images, these archetypes that we use. Uh, to communicate as human beings. So they'll have these exchanges where an English person will go to Quebec, and this is someone I've actually spoken to. So they were able to go to Quebec, and they spent a couple weeks there. They absolutely loved it, and so they invited their host family to come, and they're like, no, we can't. And they're thinking, well, you know, we'll, we'll help you. you could, it's not that big a deal. You know, I mean, Alberta, yeah, there's not a lot of French, but, you know, it'll be awesome. It'll be a great experience. We can help you. And they're like, that's not the problem. We trust you wholly that, you know, you'll, you'll be very supportive and you'll help us. The problem is, is between Alberta and Quebec, there are a number of provinces. Ontario, they're lucky if they realized if they were to go north uh, through Quebec and then through northern Ontario, they'd actually be pretty okay, right? The, the accents would be a little bit pire, they'd be a little crappy. Um, some people might be a little nervous to speak their French to someone who was wholly French because, again, um, we only take one or two French courses in school and then we say that, you know, all Canadians can speak some French. <laughs> yeah, sure. But this uh, host family in Quebec said there was no way that they could, they could go to Alberta, right? Because, again, if they were to get on the plane, it's unlikely they'd get uh, adequate service in French because... Trust me, I can speak French, or at least certainly when I was young, I could speak French in such a way that I sounded more like from Europe because I sounded native French, but not Québécois, not the joual. Like, you really couldn't pick it up. If I don't really try, I do have a, uh, a joual d'Ontario. I have a northern Ontario French accent, but when I was young, I used to really put on the flair. And I was told I sounded a lot like Jacques Villeneuve, the, uh, the Formula One race car driver. And, and the, the reason why, I think, is because, um, because he spent so much time in Europe, he was able to speak French and English. Or, really the sad truth might have been that since Jacques Villeneuve was uh, francophone, francophonie, he was uh, French first, 
So uh, his French was excellent, like me, over the last 25, 30 years. My French has uh, suffered, but my English has only uh, improved. And that's what I think probably happened to him. His French was his main language, going over to Europe using English regular, um, because he was, like me, fluent at one time in the two. He was able to practice his English, um, but not at the expense of his French, because he was still able to use his French with family and you know, being in Europe. Unlike me, moving to southern Ontario, um, even being raised by an Irishman and an English lady, right, who, oof, we didn't speak a lot of French, right? So, long story short, these people can't drive through their other provinces. They can't fly over these other provinces without English. But no one stops and goes, well, maybe it'd be best if you learned a little English. No, no, that's culturally inappropriate and insensitive. But what's really culturally inappropriate and insensitive is the real truth is that as this young guy that I was speaking to who said he felt his French language and culture was affirmed by a bag of chips in Vancouver, British Columbia, would have French and English on the packaging. But then he had nothing to say in response when I asked him, but how would you pay for, for that bag of chips if your cashier didn't speak a word of English, couldn't tell you change, right? Because these people from Quebec, and I've seen it myself, they don't realize that it's with these little, little times that things fail. Because when I was helping out uh, in the gift shop at the, uh, the Temple Museum Complex, um, whenever someone came from another country, I would endeavor to speak some of their language. And so, of course, the people in the temple started to get this impression that I spoke a couple dozen languages. But in reality, it's just, for the most part, uh, I just learned, you know, hello and goodbye and thank you and all this sort of stuff. Just, you know, to make people feel more comfortable in their own language. But it was one single incident that actually made them think that I was a wizard. Xi'an in Chinese. It was um, this uh, lovely lady that came from South America. I can't remember exactly where. It might have been Chile. But don't quote me. And she wanted to buy a little statue. And of course, uh, in the temple, most people had a hard time communicating in English, never mind communicating to someone whose English is, is barely a second language. But what I noticed for her is her numbers were failing. She didn't know any English numbers. So when I finally helped her to check out, I thought, you know, checking out would be no problem because her English wasn't terrible. But her numbers were terrible. So when she went to the cashier, um, being that it was a Chinese monk, uh, nun, my apologies, that was uh, cashing her out, um, she couldn't understand what she was asking for, right? 23-something or 123, whatever it was. And that's when I realized, oh, well, I'm going to have to step in. So I stepped in, and I was able to converse with her in Spanish, only because, honestly, kind of like John Cena, uh, it started with me just learning how to count one to ten. Uno, dos, tres, cuatro, cinco, seis, siete, ocho, nueve, diez. And then it went up to once, doce, trece, catorce, quince. 
It's not that hard, especially if you've got a little background in French, but that makes it a little harder, especially the Italian. The Italian is really hard to pick up if you speak uh, French or Spanish already because it's so close. Uh, you'll end up speaking, for me, I speak Spanish when I should be speaking Italian and Italian when I should be speaking Spanish. But this is uh, what I was getting at, is they were unable to communicate because of change, just numbers, right? And so when I stepped in and was able to tell her how much the money was in Spanish, they, of course, thought I was a wizard because, well, he just speaks just about every language there is. But this is what I'm trying to get at with this kid is, so you have, say in this case, you have this beautiful Buddhist statue. You can uh, read the number if there is a price tag on it. All right. But um, the cashier needs to ask if you want a bag or if you want change or what have you. They're unable to communicate. So for me, that's the re-traumatization that we see with our indigenous people, which we've seen with the, the Irish. Um, it's a multi-generational, intergenerational trauma. Because of this re-traumatization... When your government says that you're equal and we're making up for the, uh, the discrimination we've, we've uh, you know, institutionalized in the past, and yet they continue in the same vein. Like I've mentioned this before in Canada, uh, April 21st, 2021, they made your ethnicity, uh, I would say arbitrary, but uh, it's not. Um, it's, it's a personal choice. It's what they made it. But not if you're an Indian. If you're an indigenous person, you have to follow the, the definition under the, uh, the Canadian Indian Act. And so what am I getting at here? This is why I'm writing this book, The Tragedy of Trauma, because imagine the trauma. My grandmother, my father's mother, the wife of my grandfather, the man who served for six years in the bomber command, a navigator on uh, Halifax, and, jeez, um, uh, what was the other one he flew? Lancaster, bombers, in Second World War. Um, when, uh, when he came back from the war, he was pretty traumatized. And uh, if it wasn't for my grandmother's uh, native traditional culture. I mean, they, they helped him with sweat lodge and all these different traditional uh, practices. But this piece of our history, how our family uh, didn't consider indigenous as less than, right? The only person you should consider less than others is yourself. That's a teaching from Jung, actually, um, but it's also a quote from Hemingway. There's nothing new under the sun. That's from the Bible. Or North of Fry. We don't talk about the truth that my grandmother, to marry my grandfather, had to give up her status, her indigenous status. So wait a minute. You can only be an indigenous if defined by law, unless you marry... What? But none of us talk about this disconnect because... Sadly, 
this isn't strictly a white person problem because the culture that my grandmother's from, uh, Dokis, uh, Mississauga of the Algonquin, uh, I mean uh, Ojibwe, Anishinaabe, if you leave the culture, in this sense, they call this leaving the culture, marrying outside, almost like a Jewish, only more extreme. You were actually ostracized. You were no longer part of the tribe. They had the opposite to the narrative that we know in modern film and media, this idea that you know white people were being made uh, as part of the tribe. There's actually, I think, at least one book written about this, uh, that in um, America's Great Move West, there was a lot of um, white people who were held captives and yada yada, but they actually ended up liking, there was a few of them who really enjoyed the lifestyle. I mean, forget about the argument. We can never know truly whether it was, uh, you know, Stockholm Syndrome or if they truly loved um, uh, the culture because really at this time it was a, a seminal period. Uh, these books that talk about what was going on uh, at the time, uh, right, 18, what would you say? So we'll say 1800 to 1900, right? 1820 to 1880. In this period of history, it was the time of Charles Darwin. I've talked about this, how Nietzsche wrote his Thus Spake Zarathustra, his, uh, his, his greatest tome, uh, and don't misunderstand, this isn't a Beatles thing, uh, you know, we're more popular than Jesus. Uh, Nietzsche wrote Zarathustra as a replacement for the Bible. Not because he was thought that it needed uh, um, upgrading, but because he felt we had stopped believing in the tenets and the reasons, therefore, why we created these religions. So he was asking us, since our biology explains so much. People lost faith in their metaphysics, as he says. So at this time, arguably, this meaning crisis, which I believe existed prior to Nietzsche outlining it, Jung, uh, there was a French... Um, doctor who wrote about trauma people who were in train accidents and stuff so this was something we understood so there's, there's an argument to be made that these white people who had an affinity for the indigenous culture were actually um, loving the spiritual aspects I mean I've mentioned this before I, I cannot recommend Carl Jung's um, Modern Man in Search of a Soul. It's a collection of his speeches. You'll get these uh, notions in uh, the last couple sections. Uh, the Spiritual Problems of Modern Man uh, and the Clergy and Philosophers. I can't remember what the last section is translated as. But this idea that for, for Jung, for T.S. Eliot, for Hemingway, for James Joyce, it was seeing the carnage, the tragedy of the First World War that made them wonder if there was uh, a god. Uh, for Nietzsche, he served during the Frank Franco-Prussian Wars, but for him it was, uh, like I said, the Charles Darwin um, 
acceptance of the idea of, of the origin of species. The idea that, you know, we're not um, predestined to be, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, these people, instead of realizing the gestalt, which Carl Jung talked about, he just didn't coin the term gestalt. Same as Nietzsche, to realize, he talked about this in Zarathustra, his, second, his section called um, uh, the, uh, the Hinterwälder, the Hinterwälder. Uh, in English it would be the, the between worlds, the, the between worldmen or the back worldsmen. He talks about this idea that, so, there may not be a God, but we are biology. We've just reaffirmed the truth that we are biology, and yet, without the affirmation of the existence or the denial of God, we have just affirmed our disbelief. So Nietzsche asks us, we believe in the body, and we believed in God. Why are we turning our backs on a possibility of something in between? I've talked about this. This is the lesson of the tetralemma, chattiskoti uh, in Sanskrit. The tetralemma is Yogacara, uh, Madhyamaka, but it's Nietzsche's eternal return and his amorphati. So the tetralemma is Greek. It just talks that maybe your answer is A, maybe the answer is B. Possibly the answer is A or B, or both. And finally, maybe it's none of the above. Maybe we're not asking the right question. Maybe we're not looking from the right perspective. Maybe we don't have the capacity to understand, to even ask the question, right? So that's why I laugh. I'm, same as um, Carl Jung uh, is vilified for being a Gnostic, for being um, uh, spiritual or whatever you might uh, bandy. I mean, they've, they've vilified these words too, Gnosticism. It's just wisdom. It's just wisdom. Um, a personal connection to God, which is resonant in certain faiths. Faith being a synonym for, for trust. Fides. Right? Shraddha in Sanskrit being faith, commitment, and devotion, right? Confidence in the path that you follow. Trust, not truth, not absolute, not, not certainty. There is no certainty in life. This is what the teaching of impermanence of all things. So the Tetralemma tells us, teaches us, that even in the face of what seems to be certain truth, you have to remain doubtful because of our natural innate bias. Jung warned us that most evils in this world can be traced to the fact that the majority of people walk around completely unconscious. Once again, you can read that in uh, Modern Man in Search of a Soul. That's what Nietzsche was trying to teach us with this uh, eternal return. It's his treatment. I mean, you think about it, and this is what's given me a little bit of hope. This man suffered intensely, and actually, I have to correct one person who said no martyr, it was Emerson, I believe, no martyr ever minimized their suffering. But I argue that may not 
be wholly true. When writing about their suffering, surely no martyr will minimize their suffering. But when you internalize this stuff, if you read Nietzsche, if you read about his struggles with health, yes, it is it's poignant. Sanguinous, even. But when you read his philosophy, you see, you hear, you, you feel, you smell no tinge of this limit, this, this, these hindrances, these all I can think is it fits into Proust. Proust, in search of lost time, uh, too long didn't read, the secret is mindfulness, right, to be present. Uh, and therefore, time doesn't slip by as fast. But to Proust, um, the truth of life being suffering is a wonderful thing. But f for a reason you might not understand, he, he, he has the same opinion as David Goggins, the ultra-marathoner, ex-Navy SEAL, who feels you're either growing or you're atrophying. Right? So you're either getting better or you're stagnating, which means you're getting worse because the world around you, oh, excuse me, the world around you is not uh, standing still, not waiting for you. It's not uh, regressing so that you can feel like you're growing. So for me, the eternal return is simple yet complicated, very similar to how the, the duality of non-duality is inherent. Same as the, 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 uh, the law of impermanence is itself an oxymoron. Right? If impermanence is a law, if it's absolute, then not everything is Im impermanent. It's just, it's a beautiful little, it's almost a koan uh, wrapped in a riddle. And, and uh, yeah, I won't continue that cliche. But uh, Nietzsche's eternal return is the most difficult, the simplest to explain, but the most difficult to, uh, to truly embrace. Because he says, as Kipling said, that uh, the secret to life is to treat triumph and disaster as the impostors they are. When you realize the good and bad is all perception, when you realize that your existence is all you have. So he argues the only reason why we're unhappy is because we label good and bad rather than embrace everything as ours. So the argument is, if you're able to truly embrace your fate, amor fati, then everything that happens to you is your fate and therefore wondrous, divine, provenance, in and of itself, what makes flowers grow, right? Spinoza. But my question, especially last night, is this is the exact same teaching that was in Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, right? Why is it we keep teaching the exact same thing over and over again, right? 
And what's funny is, uh, may have come across just by accident. Uh, oh, hold on here. Wrong page. I believe it's just this morning. Yes. So just this morning, uh, I was reading a completely unrelated related article. And it said, uh, it says, people don't necessarily want to turn to science and empiricism for answers. They want mysticism to explain problems away. Which, that was the author putting that in. I don't agree. Uh, this author writes a lot for science periodicals, so I'm guessing that they're uh, one of these people who have their belief in biology. So anything that they can't prove empirically, again, I highly recommend Radical Empiricism by William James that explains this problem. So she's not wrong. People do want mysticism to explain problems away, but that's just a problem that we don't have a cause for. In fact, that's Jung's uh, archaic man when he talks about how we needed to have a cause for every effect and we'd apply a mystic uh, cause, right? Because for some reason we felt it had more meaning, more gravitas. And then the, uh, the author of the article quotes a historian who says, it's a very seductive, oh sorry, it's a very seductive view. Oh sorry, it's, okay, I added a letter, I apologize. It's very seductive to view the world that way. Right? To view the world in a mystical way. And it's true. It's what Jung calls the happy lie. Or the happy fiction. My apologies. The happy fiction is, is the common translation. But, again, you can hear the, the tinge of, of a toxic atheist when they equate something more. Something we don't understand yet, something we haven't been able to prove yet, as mysticism. It's the height of hubris or sheer ignorance, right? Look at Adams. Uh, who was it I was just reading recently? I might have been Proust, who was writing... Gosh, might he, no, it was Jung, actually. Jung. Jung, so he was writing in uh, 1933, and he was talking about how... Um, uh, the understanding of atoms and electrons actually changed our entire perspective and our understanding, right? So there was a time that we had scientists that were calling uh, atomism. It's actually a thing that it developed into this thing that scientists, rather than believe in meta, attached to this idea of atoms. So there isn't anything magical or special or anything meta about our existence. It's just something beyond our field of perception. Everything is provable, we just haven't proved it yet. That's almost there, but it's not. That's the coward's way out. To believe that everything can be proved is the coward's way out. Because if you listen to that quote, both the writer of the article and the historian, they both show that they don't have faith. And I'm not talking a belief in a God. I'm talking about trust, that there's an order 
to things. Not a predefined order, but, but the real truth, as Jung explains, is the happy lie is what he calls, and again, this is about context, that the happy uh, fiction is the meaning that quickens. I love that because, you know, the quickening is from uh, one of my favorite movies, The Highlander. So this idea that it may be a happy fiction, but it's meaning that powers us. This is Nietzsche's Willenmacht, right? Translates to actually the will that propels or, or that which propels the will. Depends on the context, right? So, truly, it's as simple as that, right? Um, how we will attach to the most negative uh, perceptions of things. How I joke that uh, trauma comes from tragedy, but it doesn't have to. That's the real tragedy of trauma, is that you don't have to be traumatized. Right? We see this in science when we have two individuals can go through the same experience, one traumatized, another not. Well, this is why I argue that uh, the secret uh, out of this problem is to just teach trauma, teach what it is, teach how it comes about, teach the risks, right? So we can prevent something that, well, I've labeled as um, trauma-informed adaptations. That's what we're looking to minimize, where um, we're biased, right? Because we're expecting things to go wrong all the time. Or uh, we're assuming what someone means or their intentions, right? So this idea that um, existence is inherently suffering, true, but it doesn't have to be. One, one of those oxymorons again. Wait a minute, you just said that life is suffering, but it doesn't have to be. Well, it's the idea of suffering and to suffer. Right? We can define something as suffering, but you don't have to suffer from it. This is Nietzsche's eternal return. Right? If you truly embrace the good and the bad, I've explained this before. Well, during the good times, you remember that they don't last, so you can actually appreciate them more, right? That's Proust's uh, In Search of Lost Time, right? Make it, make it matter, right? The meaning that quickens, but also uh, saliency requires your presence and your awareness. Make it matter. That's... Well, I mean, that's the, uh, the long and the short of it, right? So if you experience a trauma, just apply the meaning, right? Any challenge you go through, that's why I was saying, when you read Nietzsche, if you, if you read about him whining, say in a letter about how hard done by he is or how much he's suffering, it seems like a completely different person from the person who writes his philosophy. Because the person who's writing has no evidence of suffering or hindrance. Or even, 
lack of doubt in the sheer beauty of his lot, his existence, right? This idea of not just accepting your lot, your, your, your suffering, but embracing it, that bracing, hugging it, truly welcoming it as ordered. That's the difference, right? It's difficult, right? But not impossible. I mean, the, the, the one idea might be there's people who would choose to sell their car and, and move to an apartment uh, where they could, you know, walk around and, and do their groceries, right? There's people who can walk 10 kilometers in a day. There's people who have trouble getting up the stairs. So in that exact situation, you can have someone who loses uh, the access to their vehicle, either because of health reasons or because of, uh, well, I mean, in this day and age, not being able to afford or even... Like we did, we wanted to be more environmental, right? Because our solution out of our problems caused by two uh, cars in the driveway is not to replace those two with two different cars. The way out of this is for us to realize that we're going the way of Wall-E, right? That's the true message of Wall-E. Ignore the, 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 the technology in Wall-E. Pay attention to the warnings from Jung, from the warnings about the, the meaning crisis, the meta-crisis today, warnings that Nietzsche, that Emerson, that Whitman, Tolstoy, this idea that there may come a time where we'll become so apathetic, we'll become so lazy in thought and action that we will lose all of our potential. The fact that we've allowed science and philosophy, religion, and you name them, to convince us that we are nothing more than our biology, well then, as Nietzsche said, what is the ape to man but, but a joke, but a clown, something to make fun of. And Nietzsche warned us that if we kept on our path, our maga, the path that we were following, that's where we were destined, destined, uh, <sighs> destined to be. Arguably, Wally, using a little rhetoric, how is it any different? Uh, people aren't able to walk at all versus most people aren't able to walk to the corner store and back without um, pulling a muscle or, or being short of breath. What does that tell us, right? Or I literally have, uh, I was a member of a gym for a while, but also see it on the daily basis. I see these people who will spend hours at the gym and they smoke a pack of cigarettes a day or they go out drinking. Like, this is what I'm getting at here. Right? If you choose to move to the apartment and sell your car, then you're not suffering because, oh, I have to walk everywhere, I don't have a car, I can't do this. You have a meaning that quickens. 
Same can be said as if you lose your vehicle and you go, well, that's destiny. I mean, I'll make the best of it. Right? So same for health. Why would you go to the gym? You want to be healthier. You want to feel better. You want... Nobody sees the oxymoron of going to the gym and drinking too much or taking drugs or smoking too much or, or just walking around in utter toxic negativity. That's what surprised me most. Out of 10 people at the gym, only one of them maybe were positive. Uh, one or two more were just like, oh, I got to do this. Let me get this over and go. And then literally, you know, six of 10 were utter just toxic beings. You know what I mean? You could just tell how horrible they were for themselves and others. That's Nietzsche's eternal return. I mean, I mentioned this before that the wife and I were walking uh, during a winter, uh, post-winter storm walk, and there was a guy, uh, a delivery guy in a van uh, blocking the sidewalk and the road. We couldn't even get around him uh, if we really tried. We would have had to have gone into the actual street. And so we stopped because he was blocking us, and I said, uh, told him to pull forward. And he said, no, go around. I'm like, dude, no. I said, you pull forward, right? I said, this is a side walk, not a side park, right? So he was all pissy, but yeah, I made him pull forward. But that's the truth. Man, if you are so unhappy that you have zero skills or talent or personality or whatever the reason, that the only job that you could get um, was as a, a delivery person, well, then embrace that. I mean, just the other day, I had a guy who didn't speak proper English because I, I actually asked him, why are you at the front door? Because he called the wrong phone number. He didn't call my cell. He called the home number. And so I wasn't sure if he was one of these guys who calls before he gets here. You know how this stuff works. Uh, so I asked him if he was at the door, and he's like, um, nothing, no response. Right? So I just assumed. And yes, his English is very poor, but super friendly, super happy guy. Uh, you know? I mean, that's the trick. That's really the trick that we're seeing. I've mentioned this, that they did a survey, and some of the most unhappy people in this world are among the richest people. But we can see this. This applies to everybody. Because when I'm mentioning these, these delivery guys that came over, they're almost all new immigrants to our country, right? I'm sure a lot of them are, are temporary foreign workers. I talked about this when uh, we learned uh, in that book, Tribe, Sebastian Younger's book, Tribe. Uh, he's the author that wrote A Perfect Storm. In his uh, book, Tribe, he said that uh, uh, vets coming home were traumatized by the community because people just didn't understand what they went through, yada, yada, yada. Right? And more importantly, well, more importantly to my point, <laughs> is he mentioned the dichotomy between where these soldiers served and what life was like at home. And so I argue this is what we're watching here. So these people are coming over, uh, right? They've seen what it's like to live without, right? I've talked about this. It goes all the way back to, to Greece, right? To the secret. Uh, to not having what you want is to want what you have. So what we're seeing here is these people are coming over from, say, what we would call a third world country, 
but we'll just say someone who's not as well off as us, comes over here and they show us how to be happy, how to embrace your fate, how to just find meaning where you can find it. Because when I speak to these delivery guys, most people are just jerks. I never understood that, having quit smoking with vape, uh, with vaporizing. And there was a joke about vape mail, right? Because you used to buy little things, uh, you know, so you were always getting something. Like weekly, you'd get like a, a little piece for your mod or, you know, you'd need to get new batteries. So you're always getting some mail. This used to be something you'd be excited about. So for me to hear that these delivery guys deal with really grumpy people on a regular basis, it just blows my mind. Right? Because in the space of a couple of years, it's gone from these delivery guys being grumpy because they're just, you know, a delivery guy having to, you know, deliver crap every day and it seems like their life is meaningless, yada, yada, yada. But now, even the people receiving the deliveries, right? Based on every metric, these people should be chuffed, right? They're living in the first world, uh, you know, they have a house. For Amazon to be able to deliver to, you can't deliver it to a street corner here in Canada yet, I don't believe. Right? And they're delivering you something that you've ordered, so something that you wanted. I mean, there's, there's the irony, right? That's what Nietzsche was teaching. The eternal return is to treat everything in life as if it were your order from online delivery. Right? When that order arrives, how can you be anything but chuffed? I mean, I understand if it's late, but at least it arrived. You know? That's Nietzsche's eternal return. Is the, the hypocrisy of the human condition. That we can receive something that we ordered, that something that we wanted, and yet not be happy about it. Right? That's the Amor Fati. That's the eternal return. That's the happy fiction, right? The meaning that quickens. That's radical empiricism. That's uh, the collective unconscious to Jung. It's this um, uh, third-party awareness of Vedanta, of non-duality, Shakti, Dakini, um, Providence. Uh, this trust that we can tap into. I argue that um, where modern science really fails is we've never stopped to realize that it's likely that maybe uh, some of the really early uh, sentences from uh, Indian philosophy might have been right. Now, don't, ooh, don't, uh, don't hate me for getting this wrong, but you can look it up yourself. One of these powerful uh, uh, statements is... Uh, Avam Atta Brahma, which means I am Brahman. Sometimes translated as I am God, that's problematic. What it actually means is I am providence. I am uh, God according to Spinoza, to Emerson, to Walt Whitman. Um, the, the, the power that makes flowers grow, that makes rain fall, that... that gives man hope in the face of some of the most horrendous suffering. That's what makes this magical. Right? When people ask me why people love Frankl, he's really become popular. When 
I know, because me, I think Jung is who people should be attaching to. It's simple, because imagine how rare it is. In fact, Nietzsche criticized Buddhism, not because it was wrong, but because it placed too great a weight on individuals living a selfless life. Right? Living for something that they won't see. As Nietzsche said, writing for future generations. I mean, the greatest tragedy is that man um, died without ever knowing the impact he would have for generations, for, for millennia, in my opinion. Because that's literally the teaching here. Right? That, well, I mean, that's, I'll leave it at that because, I mean, I'll just ramble on about the same stuff because that's literally, uh, it seems to be the long and the short here is um, when you read a statement that people want to turn to mysticism because it's easier. Is it? Or is it because it seems to have what equates to closer to the answers we're looking for when science seems to be getting further away from these simple answers that we're looking um, for understanding even, right? But on that, I'll leave it there. So, welcome to the meta-modern, where we're in a meaning crisis, we're in a meta-crisis only because we're trapped in postmodernism. Maybe a neo-postmodernism that has reinvented itself uh, as a supposed replacement for this meta-modern movement. But truly, that's where we should be. Right? Nietzsche warned us to, to move on to meta-modernism, and Jung did as well. You don't have to believe in magic powers or mysticism, but to think that the human potential, the placebo, the potentiality that we have within us, not just individuals, but as a species, as a creature, to see that as, as nothing but biology, that is truly the, uh, the real mistake in this case. <laughs>